0: I'm Roger Kimball, the co-editor and publisher of the New Criterion and publisher of Encounter Books. Andy McCarthy, whose book Willful Blindness, and I pause here for a public service announcement, will be published on Monday by Encounter Books, is my co-conspirator in organizing this event. Andy and I are delighted to welcome you all to this conference on free speech in an age of jihad, which is sponsored jointly by the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and the New Criterion. Andy and I would like to thank Alexandra Priate and her team at Capital HQ for their superb job of putting this conference together on short notice. We have a capacity crowd (coughs) today and that is a testimony to their skill. We would also like to thank the several individuals and institutions whose contributions helped make this gathering possible. In particular, we'd like to thank Donald Kahn, James Pearson, and the National Review Institute for their indispensable support. These events are not free, and uh, they could not be done without the stalwart support support of such such, uh, individuals and institutions. I wish I could promise that you were in for an uplifting discussion today. Alas, the subject of our deliberations is melancholy in the extreme. Over the course of the next several hours, you will learn about one of the most serious threats to freedom of expression since, well, I'm not sure what date to pick exactly. I was going to say the most serious threat to freedom of expression in a generation But really, it might be more accurate to say since 1683, when the advance of Islam into Europe was decisively, if not quite finally checked at the Battle of Vienna. Now, I suspect that some of you will think that I'm being hyperbolic. One of the most serious threats to freedom of expression since 1683 isn't that going a bit far? I would beg you to suspend judgment on that question until this afternoon. Some of you may then conclude that I was speaking with my customary understatement. Our program today will begin with a discussion of libel tourism. My informal studies have shown that 87% of the time that a member of the general public first encounters the term libel tourism, his response is to say, libel what? All I will say at the moment is that the phenomenon has nothing to do with vacation spots or travel agents, except in the derivative sense that those who are victims of libel tourism often wish to avail themselves of a travel agent's services. Our program will proceed with a discussion and a lunch talk about some of the ways in which legitimate criticism of radical Islam is being suppressed around the world. And we'll conclude this afternoon with a discussion pro and con, of some possible legal and legislative remedies. Before proceeding with our first panel, however, I'd like to say a few words to put the discussion of free speech in the age of jihad into context. For the last few decades, American colleges and universities have been preaching the creed of multiculturalism and cultural relativism. Politicians, pundits, and the so-called cultural elite have assiduously absorbed the catechism of multiculturalism. And the chief tenet of that cate- catechism is that all cultures are equally valuable, and therefore that preferring one culture, intellectual heritage, or moral and social order to any other is to be guilty of ethnocentrism and racism. That's actually not quite as egalitar- <coughs> egalitarian as it sounds, for you soon realize that the doctrine of cultural relativism is always what you might call a weighted relativism. Preferring Western culture or the Western intellectual heritage is culpable in a way that preferring other traditions is not. The rise of multiculturalism in the West, and note that it is almost exclusively a Western phenomenon, parallels dissolutions elsewhere in culture and society. Only a few years ago, we were invited to contemplate the pleasant spectacle of the end of history and the establishment of Western-style liberal democracy attended by the handmaidens of prosperity and rising standards of health care and education the world over. Things look rather different today, I think, as the re-tribalization of the world proceeds apace and a variety of centrifugal forces threatens to undermine the sources of national identity and with it the sources of national strength and the security which that strength underwrites. The threat shows itself in many ways, from culpable complacency to the corrosive imperatives of multiculturalism and political correctness. The multiculturalists claim to be fostering a progressive cultural cosmopolitanism distinguished by superior sensitivity to the downtrodden and dispossessed. In fact, they encourage an orgy of self-flagellating guilt, as impotent as it is insatiable. The crucial thing to understand, I think, is that notwithstanding the emancipationist rhetoric that accompanies the term multiculturalism, multicultural, multiculturalism is really not about recognizing general culture, genuine cultural diversity or encouraging vibrant pluralism. It is rather about undermining the priority of Western values, not only in our educational system, but also in society at large. As the political scientist Samuel Huntington put it, multiculturalism is essentially anti-European civilization. It is, he wrote, basically an anti-Western ideology. And it is in this sense that multiculturalism and political correctness have been critical intellectual and moral enablers for the agenda of radical Islam. It seems that everywhere one turns these days, you are warned against the evil of Islamophobia and cautioned against offending Muslims. Now, let me pause to say a word or two about the term Islamophobia. In my view, it is a misnomer. A phobia, after all, describes an irrational fear, and it is axiomatic that fearing the effects of radical Islam is not irrational, but on the contrary, very well founded indeed. If you want to speak of a legitimate phobia, and it's a phobia that I confess I experience frequently, we should speak rather of Islamophobia phobia, the fear of and revulsion toward Islamophobia. As for offending Muslims, the list of things that Muslims are offended by is long and growing daily. They don't like ice cream that was distributed by Burger King because a decoration on the lid looks like the Arabic Arabic script for Allah. That script is now gone. They are offended by, and I quote from an English paper, pig-related items including toys, porcelain figures, calendars, and even a tissue box featuring Winnie the Pooh and Piglet appearing in the workplace. Well, say goodbye to Piglet. The result is a kind of preemptive cringe, a sudden upsurge of that famous chilling effect that you are always hearing about, but are now at last seeing in action. We hesitate to publish cartoons of Muhammad for fear of offending Muslims. We mustn't publish articles pointing out that the demographic disparity between Muslims of Canada and Europe and other parts of the population uh, is significant for fear of offending Muslims. We mustn't even publish books saying critical things about Saudis and terrorists for fear of offending Muslims. My current favorite item in this lexicon of capitulation is the decision by Gordon Brown's government in England to rename Islamic terrorism as anti-Islamic activity in order, as he put it, to woo Muslims. Now this, let's not be beastly to the Muslims gambit, reminds us that jihad comes in a variety of textures. Perhaps the most worrisome aspect of jihad is not the murderous, hard variety that we know about from 9-11, from Madrid, from the subway bombings in London, from the bombing of nightclubs in Bali, from the torching of Danish embassies, and on and on and on. In a way, perhaps even more worrisome is soft jihad. Traditional jihad is waged with scimitars and their contemporary equivalents, for example, stolen Boeing 767s, which make handy instruments of mass homicide. Soft jihad is a quieter affair. It uses and abuses the language and the principles of democratic liberalism, not in order to secure the institutions and attitudes that make freedom possible, but on the contrary, to undermine that freedom and to pave the way for theocratic intolerance. Just yesterday, Richard Warman, a former member of Canada's infamous Human Rights Commission and the chap who might be the most successful litigant in Canadian history, sued a long list of conservative Canadian bloggers as part of his efforts to tame the internet and expunge opinions about radical Islam that he doesn't like. Some of the panelists uh, joining us today are the beneficiaries of Mr. Warman's uh, legal activity. Soft jihad is patient. It comprehends the importance of demographic trends as well as Mark Stein does. It, too, sees the demographic writing on the wall, and it is content to wait a few years to occupy the West's real estate. It's so much easier when you come right down to it than blowing the stuff up and then finding yourself with a massive cleanup and rebuilding bill. Even as some Westerners are beginning to wake up to the progress of soft jihad and what some people have called sharia creep, it is worth noting that radical Islam continues to make conspicuous strides in co-opting Western institutions and legal instruments to undermine the reality of Western liberty. A Turkish lawyer, recently found that the white jerseys with a bold red cross of an Italian football team reminded him of the Crusades. So, he sued the team for wearing shirts that are, once again, offensive to Muslim sensibilities. A few weeks ago, the Associated Press reported on the summit meeting of the Organization of of the Islamic Conference in Senegal. Leaders of the world's Muslim nations, the report informed us, are considering taking legal action against those that slight their religion or its sacred symbols. Quoth Abdoulaye Wade, Senegal's president, I don't think freedom of expression should mean freedom from blasphemy. There can be no freedom without limits. Now, it's worth pausing over that. There is a sense, of course, in which President Wade is correct. There can be no freedom without limits. James Madison or John Locke might have said something similar, but with a very different intent. The alarming thing is the way that President Wade latches on to the rhetoric of classical liberalism, not to support the values of liberalism, but to undermine them. If a Danish paper publishes a caricature of Mohammed, should Denmark or the paper or the cartoonist responsible be liable for offending a Muslim in Senegal? The crucial thing to bear in mind is that one of the features of living in a modern secular democracy is that there was always plenty of offense to go around. That's part of the give and take of a free society. Another word for the prerogative of giving offense is freedom. Prohibit the offense and you kill the freedom. No Muslim is more offended by cartoons of his prophet than I am by their barbaric reaction to the cartoons. But their first reaction when offended is to torch an embassy, shoot a nun, or knife a filmmaker. Increasingly, they have extended these activities to using the legal apparatus. They sue an individual, an institution, or even a whole country. The large issue here is one that has bedeviled liberal societies ever since there were liberal societies. Namely, that in attempting to create the maximally tolerant society, we also give scope to those who would prefer to create the maximally intolerant society. It is a curious phenomenon. Liberalism implies openness to other points of view, even, it seems, to those points of view whose success would destroy liberalism. Extending tolerance to those points of view is a prescription for suicide. But intolerance betrays the fundamental premise of liberalism, namely openness. So what to do? The escape from this disease lies in understanding that tolerance and openness must be limited by positive values if they are not to be vacuous. American democracy, for example, um, grants its citizens great latitude, but great latitude is not synonymous with the proposition that anything goes. Our society, like every society, is founded on particular positive values. The rule of law, for example, respect for the individual, religious freedom, the separation of church and state, all things that are deliberately uh, proscribed by radical Islam. The imperatives of multiculturalism and political correctness have hindered us from defending or even understanding those values. Radical Islam has taken advantage of the resulting vacuum. My point is that openness, the openness that a liberal society rightly cherishes, is not a vacuous openness, open to all points of view. It is not value neutral. It need not, indeed not, it cannot say yes to all comers, to the Islamofascist who, after all, has his point of view just as much to the, as to the soccer mom who has hers. Western democratic society, is rooted in a particular vision of what Aristotle called the good for man. The question is this. Do we, as a society, still have confidence in the animating values of that vision? Do we possess the requisite will to defend them? Or was the French philosopher Jean-Francois Revel right when he said that democratic civilization is the first in history to blame itself because another party is trying to destroy it? It is part of the purpose of this conference to bring such questions into sharper focus. And I'd like now to uh, ask the panelists for the first panel, uh, Stanley Kurtz, Rachel Ehrenfeld, Rook Goldstein and Ezra Levant to join me and we'll uh, continue with the first panel. And, and this panel, as in uh, all of the panels today, will have a, a presentation of about 20 minutes or so, 20, 25 minutes, followed by some discussion among the panelists. And then we'll open it up for uh, 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 questions from the, from the audience. Um, <clears throat> in this entire conference, we have uh, uh, a group of people who are not only extremely, but you might say ostentatiously well-equipped to discuss the suite of <coughs> questions that we are discussing today. Um, I'm particularly pleased to, to be moderating this panel and to uh, introduce Stanley Kurtz, the senior fellow uh, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a contribute, contributor to National Review Online, the Weekly Standard, and, and other places, and uh, our discussants, Rachel Ehrenfeld, who's the director of the Cent- American Center for Democracy and whose book, uh, uh, Funding Terror, uh, funding Evil. Funding Evil. Uh, funding Evil uh, was the conspicuous object of um, a Saudi, a, a <laughs> Saudi banker uh, who sued her for, for uh, libel in England, even though her book was published only in America. Brooke Goldstein, who's the director of the legal project at the Middle East Forum. And finally, Ezra Levant, who's the founder of EzraLevant.com, and uh, one of the objects of Richard Warman's uh, latest legal adventure.
1: Stanley. Thanks so much, Roger. Uh, Well, whether you're an entire country or just a single individual, I think the last thing you want to do is to mess with either Mark Stein or Ezra Levant. And unfortunately, I risk offending both Mark and Ezra today because in this talk that I'm going to deliver, I have had to leave out for uh, time purposes the sections that just describe the struggles that Mark Stein and Ezra Levant are having in Canada right now. I will be giving the second part of the paper which reflects on all of that, reflects on the libel tourism phenomenon and what's going on with Stein and Levant in Canada. But just laying down the narrative of what's going on, I'm going to skip, except for one thing which I'll mention right now, uh, and we'll see if Ezra agrees with this, but w- what, I, what I argue in the paper is, and I think Ezra does agree with this, things are going fairly well in Canada now if you've followed this at all. Uh, the Human Rights Commission's up there to some degree are discrediting themselves. Uh, a Liberal Member of Parliament, is it Keith Martin? Was A Liberal Member of Parliament proposed eliminating uh, Section 131, uh, which is the uh, sort of hate speech section of Canadian law that these Human Rights Commissions use And once this liberal, this classic old-fashioned liberal, stepped forward and did this, it sort of a dam broke, and a lot of people in Canada started thinking twice about these human rights commissions. So taken for granted in what I'm uh, describing here is a little bit of a positive turn in Canada. And then, of course, there are the extraordinary events of yesterday, which we can discuss, which ultimately I don't think contradict the idea that things are going in our direction, but it could at least be argued. All right, with that introduction... I'll move on now to the talk. So it's been less than a year since the phenomenon of libel tourism first broke into public consciousness in the United States. On August 10, 2007, the Chronicle of Higher Education reported that Britain's Cambridge University Press had agreed to pulp all unsold copies of the 2006 book, Alms for Jihad, charity and terrorism in the Islamic world. In several passages embedded in a much broader study, Alms for Jihad suggests that businesses and charities associated with one of the world's richest men, Saudi banker Khalid bin Mahfouz, helped to finance terrorism during the 1990s. Bin Mahfouz's threat of a libel suit in Britain was sufficient to extract from Cambridge Press not only an agreement to pulp the book, but also a public apology, payment of substantial damages, legal fees, and a pledge to contact libraries worldwide with the request that they remove Alms for Jihad from their shelves. In the face of this legal challenge, Alms for Jihad's American authors, academic historian Robert O. Collins and J. Millard Burr, a retired employee of the U.S. State Department, stood by their work offered evidence in support of their book's assertions to Cambridge and refused to join in the press's apology. Indeed, the manuscript of Alms for Jihad had been vetted and approved by Cambridge's in-house lawyers prior to publication. Yet the mere threat of a suit in a British court was enough to push this publisher to abandon Alms for Jihad without a fight. The specter of an American authored book on terrorist financing, being physically destroyed, its copies pulled off of library shelves, its authors' defenses ignored, and obsequious apologies offered, all because of the mere threat of a suit in British courts, had American bloggers, myself included, in full cry. Alarm grew as readers flooded onto Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, Alibris, and other internet book sites, trying to secure copies of Alms for Jihad. In real time, full virtual view of the blogosphere, the book was withdrawn from sale on all these sites and more. As outrage grew, the price of this instantaneously rare book rose astronomically. The battlefield now shifted to the libraries. This was only the second time in nearly a quarter century that Cambridge University Press had called on libraries to remove a book from their shelves. Would America's institutions of higher learning bow to Cambridge and withdraw alms for jihad? Rather than wait to find out, readers rushed to save the book from destruction by borrowing and holding it, perhaps even surreptitiously reproducing and circulating it. Numerous libraries reported missing copies, while others placed the book either behind the reserve desk or in rare book collections. Finally, on August 14th, 2007, four days after the public controversy broke, the Office for Intellectual Freedom of the American Library Association issued a statement recommending that libraries refuse Cambridge's request and keep the book available. The ALA statement noted the stark difference between libel law in Britain, where the burden of proof is on the accused, and America, where the burden of proof is on the plaintiff. Given claims by many that Bin Mahfouz was attempting to use Britain's plaintiff-friendly libel law to silence critics, and given the fact that American libraries were under no legal obligation to destroy alms for jihad without an order from an American court, the ALA argued that, quote, intense interest in the book and the desire of readers to learn about this controversy firsthand, end quote, ought to hold sway. Although existing library copies had been saved, um, the alms for jihad affair felt to many like a true-to-life scene from Ray Bradbury's dystopian novel Fahrenheit 451. The hero of this 1951 classic was a professional book burner in a future where literature had been banned. Fahrenheit 451 is the kindling temperature of paper, the temperature at which a book will auto-ignite essential information for professional book burners everywhere, and perhaps nowadays for select golf based financiers and British judges as well. If the Alms for Jihad mini-scandal were an isolated case, its resonance with Bradbury's novel might be dismissed as a mere curiosity. In fact, however, this seemingly bizarre case of pulped non-fiction turned out to be the spark igniting public awareness of a far more pervasive problem. Not one book, but possibly as many as 36 books, containing passing mentions of Bin Mufuz's financial activities, have been suppressed by the threat or reality of British libel suits. More important, the chilling effect of these suits has rendered publishers worldwide reluctant to accept material that touches upon terror network financing. To see how a touring Saudi banker suing American authors and, pu- and publishers in a British court has sent a chill over book publishers and news organizations worldwide. We'll need to consider the case of liable tourism's most famous victim, Rachel Ehrenfeld. A sometime advisor to the US Department of Defense, Ehrenfeld serves as director of the New York based American Center for Democracy. Since before 911, She's been a pioneering investigator of the shadowy financial networks that are terrorism's hidden lifeblood. Ehrenfeld's 2003 book, Funding Evil, reported that Saudi billionaire Khalid bin Mahfouz was tied to charities that deposited tens of millions of dollars into terrorist bank accounts. Now, this is the same bin Mahfouz whose threatened libel suit led to the pulping of alms for jihad and as in that and many similar cases, Bin Mafouz took Ehrenfeld to court in Britain where libel laws are highly favorable to plaintiffs. How could a resident of Saudi Arabia bring a British libel suit to bear on a book published in America? A couple dozen copies of Funding Evil sold in Britain over the internet were deemed <coughs> sufficient by a British court to claim jurisdiction. With these few sales, a book published in the United States, and therefore protected by the First Amendment and American law, fell under a shadow from abroad. Uh, by American legal standards, Ehrenfeld's allegations regarding Bin Mahfouz, thank you, were fully and properly sourced from reputable journals, magazines, lawsuits, government actions, and Ehrenfeldt's personal contacts with government officials. Former CIA Director R. James Woolsey wrote the introduction to alms for jihad.
2: No, funding evil. Pardon me? Funding evil.
1: Funding evil. (laughs) Funding evil. Hold it up. Hold it up. I'm sorry about that. Um, The Saudi financier, you see, she's a bulldog, and that's very good for all of our sakes, as you'll soon see as the story goes on. The Saudi financier was in any case discussed on but a handful of pages in Ehrenfeld's book, Funding Evil. Now, however, without financial resources of her own, Ehrenfeld faced an extended legal battle with one of the richest men in the world under a law that effectively presumed her guilt. In response, Ehrenfeld refused to contest bin Mahfouz's suit and instead boldly denied British jurisdiction over a strictly American published book. To drive home the point, the second edition of Ehrenfeld's contested volume included uh, included a discussion of the Bin Mahfouz lawsuit and jacket copy advertising funding evil as, quote, the book the Saudis don't want you to read, end quote. None too pleased with Ehrenfeld's defiance, and he was particularly ticked off at that little book the Saudis don't want you to read, British Justice David Eady, presiding judge in the majority of notorious libel tourism cases, ordered Ehrenfeld to apologize to Bin Mafuz, retract, pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages, and destroy all copies of her book. Although Ehrenfeld refused to comply, this British judgment has cost her dearly. A frequent traveler to London for research purposes, Ehrenfeld must now avoid Great Britain for fear of arrest. Although the sourcing of funding evil is entirely unobjectionable by American standards, Ehrenfeld now stands stigmatized, convicted of libel. Even in America, knowing that a few internet purchases could bring a new book under attack overseas, publishers now shun her work. One of Ehrenfeld's key sources of income, not to mention, one of America's key sources of life-saving information on terrorist infrastructure, is now cut off. Worse still, any American author or news outlet interested in exposing terror finance networks must now fear a British suit. So-called libel chill has descended upon a field of investigation essential to the war on terror and likely suppresses publication on related topics as well. By cleverly refraining from seeking to enforce his decision against Ehrenfeld in American courts, where he would almost surely lose, Bin Mahfouz has effectively paralyzed an entire subfield of American authors. Even without a direct legal attack in American courts, the stigma of a British libel judgment and the threat of more such judgments against any American publisher with a presence on the internet or overseas, suffices to silence opponents. In effect, the internet-driven internationalization of publishing is nullifying America's First Amendment protections and subjecting the world's authors to the standards of the weakest link in the international legal chain. Fortunately, Ehrenfeld is fighting back. Although it saddled her with hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and severely inhibited her own work Ehrenfeld has gone to war with Bin Mahfuz in American courts, seeking a ruling that English libel judgments violate the First Amendment and are therefore void in the United States. Although several courts have declined to rule on the underlying issue for lack of jurisdiction, New York's Court of Appeals, uh, Appeals effectively referred the issue to the state legislature for resolution. And in fact, a mere 10 days before the convening of this conference, The New York State Legislature passed the Libel Tourism Protection Act, otherwise known as Rachel's Law. (laughs) (laughs) With the purpose of protecting American authors, news organizations, and publishers from being terrorized by the threat of foreign defamation lawsuits. It's also, by the way, it's also called the li- not the Liable Tourism Protection Act, it's actually called the Liable Terrorism Protection Act because it's terrorizing to have this sort of suit brought against you in another country. A notable feature of Rachel's Law was bipartisan sponsorship of the bill, unanimous votes for passage, and support from a wide array of organizations representing American writers, news outlets, and publishers. With luck, Rachel's law will serve as the model for a similar, perhaps even tougher, federal law. All right, now I'm skipping over the Canadian part. Mark Stein and Ezra Levant, forgive me, but I will be discussing it now as I move to the latter part of my paper. So the eight months from August 10th of 2007 through April 10th of 2008 have seen a growing wave of concern in North America about novel threats to freedom of the press and freedom of speech, often internet-based and international in scope. How should we understand these emerging threats to freedom of speech and opinion? What elements unite them, and how can they best be overcome? To begin to answer these questions, consider the very thoughtful, but finally I would argue, wrong-headed approach to the Ehrenfeld case by novelist and First Amendment lawyer Julie Hilden. Hilden sees the Ehrenfeld affair as a clash of cultures. America, says Hilden, values speech and openness, while Britain so values reputation and privacy that it, quote, errs in favor of what is in effect government censorship by the courts, end quote. Although Hilden favors U.S. libel law on its merits, she is loath to create, quote, yet another instance of America imposing its way upon the world, end quote. So instead of pushing for libel reform in Britain, Hilden suggests that the United States and Britain sign a defamation treaty, which would define the circumstances in which each country would surrender jurisdiction to the greater interest of the other in any particular case. This bit of legal multiculturalism, I would suggest, is precisely the wrong way to look at the problem we face. There may well be cases where longstanding profound and deeply rooted cultural difference make it difficult to adopt uniform policies across international borders. But foundational freedom of speech, press, and opinion in the West is not one of them. The West shares a long and deep tradition of rights-based political freedom, as well as a common legal culture that treats defendants as innocent until proven guilty. We discard these principles and protections at our peril and peril is exactly what we face today. Whether our traditions of freedom have been traduced by 19th century British libel laws or 1970s vintage hate speech laws, it's long past time for Europe and North America to return to first principles. Ill-advised libel laws that trade our liberties for the convenience of criticism-averse politicians and minorities are a luxury the West simply cannot afford. We are no longer peering anxiously over the slippery slope. We are careening headlong straight down it. And by the way, we'll discuss what happened yesterday in Canada. I think that's just one more confirmation of that fact. The fundamental reason that our liberties have survived their negation in libel laws that effectively treat defendants as guilty or from human rights commissions empowered to police and suppress the expression of political opinion, is that we in the West do in fact share a profound faith in liberty. If we occasionally traduce our own freedoms with ill-advised laws yet survive, this is only because our underlying culture of freedom ultimately moderates and controls the actual operation of those laws. That is why the arrival in the West of large populations from Middle Eastern societies where a culture of liberty cannot be taken for granted changes things. Those not inhibited by democratic mores seize upon our most ill-conceived laws, shamelessly exploiting every hole in our liberty that we have been so foolishly complacent as to allow. Citizens well-schooled in liberty, whether immigrant or native-born, would blush to bring suit against the mere expression of political opinion. However offensive. In the hands of those without such schooling, our imperfect laws have been turned into tools for the suppression of speech. The cultural challenge posed by immigration from outside the West is rapidly forcing every slippery slope. Our margin for error is now lost, and the time for complacency is over. Julie Hilden is right about one thing, however. Not only the cultural challenge of immigration, but the globalizing power of the internet is forcing these issues. Hilden points out that reputation is rapidly becoming a global affair. If it is unfair to allow British libel law to negate the First Amendment for Americans, the passage of a national Rachel's law combined with the power of the internet would inevitably subject personal reputation outside the United States to American free speech standards. To my mind, This does not suggest the need for defamation treaties, the operation of which will in any case be disputed and inevitably end up trampling on one country or another's laws. What the internationalization of reputation suggests instead is that laws of speech and libel worldwide are now up for grabs. On the matter of speech, the internet will inevitably push the world either toward a chaos of competing laws and norms or force a gradual uniformity, which will be closer to the pull of liberty or the pull of restriction, depending on how we act now. What's needed, therefore, is a common front on behalf of liberty throughout the West, a coalition that will fight to abolish abominations to freedom, such as Canada's human rights commissions, Britain's libel laws, and America's campus bias reporting systems. That was something else in the part of the talk I had to cut out, but these campus bias re- reporting systems are like academic versions of Canadian human rights commissions. It is simply not the case that we are dealing with a stable national traditions or a strictly American belief in classic liberal principle. On the contrary, speech and libel laws throughout the West are very much in motion, and powerful voices in every Western country speak both for and against freedom, classically understood. Sadly, many Americans defend and promote the de facto speech laws embodied in campus bias reporting systems, while increasing numbers of Canadians speak out against so-called human rights commissions, and growing numbers of Britons call for a reform of outdated libel laws. This is not a case of America against the world, but the West in search of itself. Let's bust some myths. It's certainly true that Canada's human rights commissions like Europe's hate speech laws, are wielded chiefly by minorities, immigrants, and those on the left against Christians and those who lean right. A fact that suggests these commissions are being used to perpetrate illiberal and partisan political cultural warfare under the guise of law and right. Yet left liberals are far from untouched by the new assault on speech. Craig Ungers, House of Bush, House of Saud, an American bestseller, and a book beloved of Bush opponents during the 2004 presidential election was banned in Britain under the same libel laws that that suppress Rachel Ehrenfeld. Ruling against another British libel decision, the European Court of Human Rights declared that the free speech rights of anti-corporate protesters had been violated when they were forbidden to leaflet against what they believed to be economic, ecological, and humanitarian malpractices by McDonald's restaurant. With McDonald's deep pockets and an effective presumption of guilt, it was impossible for these protesters' allegations to pass muster in British court. Here, in an attack on the left of the political spectrum, lies a slippery slope from British libel law to the end of political freedom. To call this banning of anti-McDonald's leafleting a product of British culture, is an offense to the liberties of us all, born as they were in Britain, our mother country. The only long-standing cultural tradition at stake in this battle is our Western tradition of freedom. We are not talking about well-established and divergent national traditions, but a war within the West, both for and against liberty as classically understood. Libel and speech laws in the West are even now in a highly contested state of rapid change. Immigration, globalization, and the internet, have thrown every assumption and settled pattern into doubt. Our business today is not to compromise with incursions on our liberty, but to battle alongside allies in every nation and continent to protect our freedoms before they are fatally eroded. In truth, a national Rachel's law is the barest beginning of what is needed. Canada must abolish or reform its human rights commissions, and a major reform of British liable law and European Holocaust denial and hate speech laws must follow. An impossible goal? I don't think so. Only a few months ago, the notion that Canada might abolish or radically reform its human rights commissions would have seemed laughable. Today it is a likelihood. If globalization and the internet have raised novel challenges to our freedoms, these forces hold salvation as well. Ezra Levant's internet videos rocked Canada and have made the impossible possible. Support for Levant, Stein, and Maclean's from American bloggers helped kickstart a campaign that Canadians themselves have now expanded many times over. Every time another house of the New York State Legislature passes a version of Rachel's Law, British papers wake up and take notice. British news outlets on the left as well as the right have felt stung by Mr. Justice Eady's decisions. Stephen Glover in The Independent, has publicly attacked Mr. Justice Edie as, quote, a threat to a free press, end quote. And Jeffrey Wheatcroft in the far from conservative Guardian recently called for a fundamental overhaul of Britain's libel laws. Rachel's law itself was co-sponsored by legislators of both parties and passed both houses of the New York State Legislature unanimously. The basis of a great cross-party coalition to restore and protect the West's political liberties exists today across the Anglosphere and in Europe as well. It's up to us to activate it now. Simply erecting a free speech wall around America will not do. Even the essential first step of a national Rachel's Law won't restore Cambridge University Press as a resource for American authors who have long depended on this key outlet for their work. Nor will a national Rachel's law allow Ehrenfeld to safely disembark at Heathrow to continue her research without fearing arrest. And the silencing of American terrorism experts undermines the already gravely imperiled special relationship between America and Britain, which cannot sustain itself without an exchange of information, especially on this most crucial and controversial topic of the terror war. Our immediate goals, are a national Rachel's Law in the United States and fundamental reform or better abolition of Canada's so-called human rights commissions. Although far from guaranteed, both achievements are at least in sight. So it's time to set our sights on target number three, reform of Britain's libel laws. American bloggers and legislators have added momentum to reform movements in Canada and Britain. The effect of even partial victory over Canada's human rights commissions would be far greater. With the Canadian battle already attracting notice in Britain, victory in Canada could potentially wake up all of Europe to the dangers of its ill-starred hate speech regimes. Perhaps a year from now, why not hold a conference in London? Uh, Plane tickets will be paid for by the new criterion for everyone in the audience here. To review the progress of Rachel's law in America, the HRC battle in Canada, and the press for libel and hate speech reform uh, in Britain and beyond. Such a conference could draw substantial attention. The Canadian battle is our model. Although the mainstream American press has inexcusably ignored the Ehrenfeld battle, Canada's mainstream media has finally caught on to the problem of the Human Rights Commissions. All it took was for a prominent man of goodwill on the left, this is the MP, Canadian MP Keith Martin I referred to earlier, to speak out on behalf of classic liberal values and then the dam burst. It will not be difficult to find such figures in Britain. The press on both the right and the left in Britain is already restless with the British libel regime. The real interest defending these laws are the very politicians who would need to authorize reform since Britain's officialdom views the current libel regime as a kind of personal protection from public criticism. An international conference in London perhaps following victory in Canada, would shift momentum in favor of reform in Britain. Imagine Rachel Ehrenfeld addressing that conference by video, as she would need to do in order to avoid arrest.
2: In person. Really? Sure, bring Judge Edie too.
1: Oh yes. That's the one thing I disagree with you on. Instead of saying the book the Saudis didn't want you to read, it should have said this is the book that Judge Edie didn't want you I to read. read. With Rachel Ehrenfeld addressing the conference by video or in person, as she would need to do to avoid arrest. I guess we have bodyguards for you if you come there in person. That would be a first-class news event, generating significant media coverage in Britain and beyond. So there is a battle plan. Rachel's law today, Canada's human rights commissions tomorrow, Britain's libel Mm. laws the day after, and Europe's Holocaust denial and hate speech laws after that. To remain what we are, the West as a whole must rediscover and re-establish, on the firmest possible footing, our own traditions of freedom. We all hang together, or we all hang separately. Thank you very much,
0: Stanley. Um, I wonder whether we could hold this conference in, in Britain. I'm not sure that it would be uh, that it would be legal, frankly. Um, but it's a good idea, and, and we'll take it under advisement. Somehow. Um, uh, when you were talking, especially about Julie Hilden, I think her name is, uh, it reminded me of something that Dean Ng, the great, uh, the great Dean of St. Paul's, said uh, about the League of Nations. He said, it's no use sheep promulgating laws in favor of vegetarianism. Um, it's some, somehow, I, I think that she has a, shares that same naive naivete. What we'll do now is we'll ask um, uh, each of the discussants to uh, comment uh, briefly uh, on Stanley's paper, and then um, we'll give Stanley a chance to respond, and then we'll open it up to the uh, to the audience f- for questions. Rachel. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Libel tourism uh, was a problem in England for a long time uh, before Cambridge University Press announced before Cambridge University press and arms for Jihad. It was only in 2004 when I was sued by Ben Mahfouz for funding evil, how terrorism is financed and how to stop it, uh, that uh, my reaction and my looking into what Ben Mahfouz was doing started to create some interest. It's interesting because it's not only the use of the libel laws, it's also a question of for what purpose. And there are political purposes here that we cannot avoid, as you said, something about the West and the East. Ben Mahfouz, I think, as far as I could check, Ben Mahfouz has the highest record of suing uh, for libel in England. By now, he has, he has received 41. Actually, it was by the end of January, he had 41 uh, apologies, retractions, um, um, some judgments uh, because of most of them threats for lawsuits, not only uh, lawsuits. And yet his lawyer shows up in England, uh, in uh, the New York Court of Appeals, and says that um, my client, my client is not litigious. <laughs> um, so with 41 uh, apologies at least uh, under his belly uh, it's, it's difficult to imagine why he was doing it unless we know what's behind it the mention of Ben Mahfouz and by the way the Cambridge University Press and Arms for Jihad the American authors were not sued, they were not even threatened to be sued it was only Cambridge University Press that received a threatening letter from Ben Mahfouz's lawyers. The authors were not included, and Cambridge University Press wanted, uh, did something, in addition of apologizing, they wanted to coerce them to apologize as well, which was nice. And they, of course, objected and they were surprised that Cambridge University Press actually did what they did. And they did it within 10 days, I think, after they received a threatening letter. Now, they they called me. Uh, uh, Milad Burr called me. We spoke, and I assured him um, at the get-go that Cambridge University Press will apologize and will not stand by them. Why? Because they have they have a big office in Jeddah. Interestingly enough, over this weekend, um, Walid bin Talal had given Cambridge University, uh, Cambridge University $9 million in order to start a new um, Islamic study center. Well, um, interesting. But the interesting thing is that uh, Walid bin Talal is used to give $20 million, not $9 million, to start Islamic, uh, fin- Islamic uh, centers. Uh, I guess they already know that they don't have to pay so much for the Brits, so the price is going down. The political aspect of, the, uh, of this labor lawsuits is very important. Ben Lafouz had done on his own, and apparently, if uh, I quote um, Prince Turkey, Turki bin Faisal, who was the Saudi ambassador here in the U.S., we have to understand that Khalid bin Mahfouz is doing it for all of us, he said to somebody who complained in Britain about bin Mahfouz's frequent lawsuits. And indeed, of the many, many Saudis that have been mentioned, uh, have been documented, uh, have been spoken about, have been written about as funding terrorism, Khalid bin Mahfouz is the one who sued most, more than anybody. And um, the political reasons for it in Saudi Arabia are not something that we will get into, but that's very important to note. And libel tourism actually have been um, on the, at least in the English media, quite a lot since 2004 when I decided to come to sue him here in the United States. The English were eager to cover it. The Supreme Court of England, the House of Lords, Criticized bin bin uh, Criticized Judge eli uh, for judgment that he gave in another Saudi case, um, and he criticized him not only for the instructions that he gave to the jury, that he but uh, the court said that he deliberately uh, misled the jury. So, looking at who is the judge, and you are talking about Judge eli Judge Edy had um, awarded um, Ben Mahfouz at least uh, by now 20-some of his uh, victories. Uh, Judge Edy, by the way, I'm told, and I don't have it in uh, I don't have it documented, uh, but I have it on good sources, that when Judge Edie was a barrister, he worked uh, for Ben Mahfouz. But That may or may not be the case. Uh, What is really important is to understand that uh, these lawsuits are being used uh, to silence Western media because this is part of the very schooled. Most people who studied, Ben Mahfouz himself studied in the West. Most of the wealthy Saudis have studied in America and in England. They know our laws very well and they use them in order to subvert them, in order to undermine them, and in order to silence us. And that is something that we have to keep in mind. They know what to do in order to silence us. It's not only the weaknesses. And we have to do something in order to counter it. And fighting them and um, fighting them in court, fighting them in the public domain is very important. It is interesting that the um, British media had actually done much more writing about libel tourism than the American media did. And um, it's, uh, I hope that things will change and the American media will uh, start writing, for example, about the Libel Terrorism Protection Act and its value, or Rachel's Law because this law comes actually to protect them, uh, every one of them. And I could have never done this work. I could have never. It actually should be called uh, Dan Kornstein Law because he had worked on it. Uh, He has done fantastic work. And if you ever uh, have any libel law, any libel suit, uh, I think that, and this is not advertisement, but this is uh, true commendation. Daniel Constance should be a lawyer. Thanks.
0: Thank, th- thank you, Rachel. Uh, w- uh, one of the most um, <clears throat> interesting points that you made, I think, is that uh, uh, the almost for Jihad, with respect to that book, Cambridge University Press was not sued, as Rachel said. They were merely got a lawyer's letter threatening suit. What followed was instant capitulation. I think, actually, I, I didn't know that it was Mahfouz. I did read that eight million pounds, which is more like $16 million, has just been given to, uh, to start a, a center at Cambridge University Press. No, I thought it was nine million. Uh, eight million pounds, but I don't, so that's almost, uh, that's, you know, uh, more money. But um, she, she's quite right of the chilling effect, uh, this, the kind of preemptive cringe that I spoke about, uh, that this is sent through. Um, uh, the media, the publishing industry, um, uh, and this is an advertisement again. Uh, uh, Andy McCarthy's book, That Encounter Books, is publishing on Monday. When this book was announced, one of the entities that distributes our books in um, in England, in Canada. Uh, wrote us saying, "Uh, gee, does this book have any mention of Saudis or terrorists? Because if it does, we might have problems distributing this book uh, in England. Well, um, uh, you'll have to read the book uh, (coughs) to find out whether it does (coughs) or not.
3: Nothing
0: about terrorists. But it's a a very big problem, and um, I'd like to turn now to to Brooke Goldstein, who's who's, uh, uh, helping uh, helping in a very uh, concrete way uh, with these legal problems at the the Middle East Forum.
4: Thank you. Uh, First of all, I'm very grateful to be here and to engage in a dialogue with uh, such distinguished guests and panelists and I want to thank the FDD and Capital HQ and the New Criterion for organizing this very timely conference on the very pressing issue of uh, libel tourism and Islamist lawfare. The Islamist movement has uh, two wings, one violent and one lawful which can operate apart, but often reinforce each other. While the violent arm attempts to silence speech by burning cars in the street uh, when Danish cartoons of Mohammed are published, the lawful arm, as we know, is skillfully maneuvering within the Western legal system, uh, both here and abroad. Islamists with financial means have launched a legal jihad, filing frivolous and malicious lawsuits with the aim of abolishing public discourse critical of Islam and with the goal of establishing principles of Sharia law as the governing political and legal authority in the West. Islamist lawfare is often predatory. It's filed without a serious expectation of winning and it's undertaken as a means to intimidate, to uh, demoralize and to bankrupt the defendants. The lawsuits uh, range in claims uh, from defamation to workplace harassment, and they've resulted in books being pulped and meritorious articles going unpublished. Forum shopping, whereby plaintiffs bring actions in jurisdictions that are most likely to rule in their favor has enabled this wave of libel tourism. At the time of her death in 2006, noted Italian author Oriana Falacci was being sued in France, Italy, Italy, Switzerland, and other jurisdictions by groups who were dedicated to preventing the dissemination of her work. Libel tourism has also resulted in foreign judgments against American authors mandating the regulation of their speech and behavior. And we have some of those parties who have been targeted here today, including Rachel Ehrenfeld and including Ezra Levant and Mark Stein, who can obviously speak for themselves in terms of the ordeals that they're going through. Yet the litany of American anti-Islamist researchers, authors, activists, publishers, congressmen, newspapers, television news stations, think tanks, NGOs, reporters, student journals, and others targeted here and abroad for censorship censorship is very long and merits brief mentioning. One of the earliest cases in the United States dates back to 1937, where in Birmingham, Alabama, an Arab Sheik sued the Birmingham Post for libel over an article entitled, Arabian Sheik asks friend here to buy him an American girl for harem. The Post reported that the Sheik Farid Iman, quote, who is 29 years old and fears he may reach 30 before he obtains a chief wife for his four-wife harem, is ready to purchase a suitable girl from her parents. The lucky girl, the article continued, will, quote, benefit from the traditional Arabian protective treatment of women, end quote. (laughs) The article read more like a parody of a personal ad in the dating section of a magazine and listed a telephone number at the end to call should anyone be interested. Nevertheless, the Alabama Court of Appeals refused to dismiss the lawsuit and judged the article libelous per se or defamatory on its face and remanded it for jury trial where eventually after, you know, Uh, Lots of money was spent. The plaintiff lost for his failure, obviously, to state a cause of action. Within the last 10 years, we've seen a steady increase in cases pursued by Islamic organizations and by Muslim individuals attempting to use Western courts to stop the flow of certain information. They are achieving a degree of success in Europe, due to the fact that judicial systems in England and in France and elsewhere do not afford their citizens, the uh, or American citizens for that matter, the same free speech protections granted here under the US Constitution. The effect of the suits abroad and the suits here at home Even if they're not successful here, combined with the looming threat of future suit is creating a detrimental chilling effect on dialogue concerning important matters of public concern because people naturally want to avoid costly litigation. I want to take this opportunity now to briefly mention a few cases that have occurred within the last 10 years here within the United States and against American anti-Islamist authors and activists because it's imperative that our judicial system continue to enforce their rights to free speech and to free assembly against all parties attempting to stifle them. In 1998, America Online permitted chat rooms in which voluntary participants could post comments and talk to one another about issues involving the Quran and tenets of Islam. One Muslim visitor to the chat room named Sa'ad Noah considered posts by other visitors blasphemous and defamatory against Islam. Noah then sued AOL for libel, Attempting a class action on behalf of all Muslims in the chat room and claiming that AOL wrongfully refused to prevent participants from posting anti-Islamic comments. The court properly dismissed the case against AOL, again for failure to state a cause of action. In 2003, the Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, sued U.S. Congressman Cass Bellinger after an interview uh, with the congressman that was published in the Charlotte Observer, wherein he exclaimed how living in Washington across the street from CARE headquarters no longer appealed to him because CARE was, quote, a fundraising arm for Hezbollah, and, that, and uh, the congressman had also reported so to the FBI and to the CIA. Fortunately, the judge ruled that Ballinger's statements were made in the scope of his public duties and were therefore protected speech in the interest of public concern. The following year, CARE sued Andrew Whitehead, an American activist and blogger for $1.3 million for maintaining the website antiCare.net.org, on which Whitehead lists CARE as an Islamic organization with ties to terrorist groups. Ironically, after CARE refused Whitehead's discovery request, seemingly afraid of what internal documents the legal process it had started would reveal, CARE withdrew its claims against Whitehead, the two parties uh, came to a settlement, the terms of which have not been publicly disclosed, and the case was dismissed by the court with prejudice. Whitehead's anti-care website, however, is still up and running with the articles, with the original articles that were at issue. Last year, when Joe Kaufman, an American activist and the chairman of Americans Against Hate, traveled to Texas to lead a peaceful 10-person protest against the Islamic Circle of North America outside a Six Flags theme park, he was served with a temporary restraining order and sued for defamation and for harassment. What's particularly troubling about Kaufman's case is that the suit was filed against him not by ISNA, by the Islamic Circle of North America, but by seven Dallas area plaintiffs who had never been previously mentioned by Kaufman, nor had they been present at the theme park when he was there to protest. The suit is currently being litigated. Another case that's ongoing is that of Bruce Teft. Teft is a former CIA official and worked as a counterterrorism consultant for the NYPD. After sending out emails to a voluntary list of police officer recipients in which he cut and pasted articles about terrorism complemented with his own commentary, Teft was sued along with the NYPD by a Muslim John Doe police officer who voluntarily subscribed to his email list, who is alleging workplace harassment. Sometimes defendants targeted are able to take advantage of anti slap statutes. anti slap statutes have been enacted in several, but not in all states, and they are aimed at preventing such lawsuits designed to hinder legitimate public participation. In the book Hamas, Author Matthew Levitt describes Kinder USA as a charitable front for terror financing. When he was sued by Kinder USA along with the Yale Press who published the book, he instituted a counterclaim against the plaintiff based on California's anti-slap statute, motioning for a dismissal because he claimed that Kinder USA uh, was merely suing to intimidate him. Now. The litany goes on. I've been asked to wrap it up. But I want to make a point, and it's very important. Legal jihad is gaining momentum with a ripple effect. And we must expect that Islamists are going to engage in future legal efforts along these lines. The Islam Society of North America and the Muslim Public Affairs Council have both publicly stated that they are considering filing defamation lawsuits against their critics. The Muslim World League has called for the establishment of a commission to take legal action against those who abuse Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. During the recent two-day summit in Dakar, Taking legal action against those who defame Islam was a key issue that was debated at length by Muslim leaders. The Council on American Islamic Relations announced a fundraising goal of $1 million in part, quote, to defend against defamatory attacks against Muslims. And I'll conclude by saying this. This is not a left or right issue. The Islamist lawfare challenge presents a direct and real threat to our national security. And left unabated, the phenomenon has the potential to seriously hinder public debate on the threat of radical Islam. This country was founded on the premise of freedom of worship, but also on the principle that we have the freedom to criticize religion. Daniel Pipes who founded and who heads the Middle East Forum, recognized the seriousness of this threat, and last spring he established the legal project to counter it, of which uh, I work as director. The legal project is very young, but has been working to recruit and to establish a network No, an army of attorneys who are willing to work as pro bono counsel for the defendants in these cases. We have also embarked on fundraising efforts to assist with the cost of litigation, and we're working to raise public awareness of this phenomenon, and of course, we submitted a memo in support of Rachel's Law. Moreover, the legal project is capable of positioning itself on the offensive and has recently succeeded in getting the Muslim Weekly, a UK-based Muslim magazine, to issue a public apology and retraction of an article uh, that it published that made false and defamatory statements about Dr. Pipes, after which, uh, sorry, after they, they issued the apology only after Dr. Pipes threatened to sue them in a UK court for libel. So those parties who are recklessly and wrongfully defaming our counterterrorism authors should also beware. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Brooke. Um, we, we are kind of uh, a little short on time, uh, so I'd like to ask, uh, we're getting, so Ezra, why don't you... Uh, uh, jump in here, and then uh, then we'll 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 have a very brief response from Stanley, and open it up to the. To the great,
5: audience. thanks very much uh, for the invitation. It's great to be here all the way from Canada, um, and uh, it's nice to see so many supporters, including frankly people who have donated to my legal defense fund. So thank you. Um, and, to And those where do of we who... do that, rather? Well, through my website, ezralevant.com. But uh, frankly, it's been Americans who have helped me fight my fight in Canada. Uh, more even than other Canadians, and I think it's because you love the First Amendment so much, and you are the grown-ups in the world. You you take things seriously, whereas other countries can afford to um, to pose and uh, and make have tantrums, but not actually fight these fights. Canada's halfway between Europe and the United States in so many ways demographically we're further along the Islamification culturally legally politically we're a little bit more like Europe we're sort of like a big Vermont a little bit lefty but 90% of us live within an hour's drive of the states and other than how we pronounce some words like house and about we're pretty much just like you we're an experimental lab for a lot of bad ideas that are then imported into the states (laughs) Uh, from multiculturalism to our immigration patterns, to Sharia law for divorce, which came within an inch of being accepted as law in Ontario. Sharia banking, which is being uh, discussed by our government right now. So what happens in in Europe today happens in Canada in five or ten years, and might happen in America five or ten years after that. Well, one thing that happened in Canada was on February 13th, 2006, I, had, uh, I was the publisher of a conservative magazine that's unfortunately no longer around called the Western Standard. Sort of like a Canadian version of National Review or the Weekly Standard. And we published the Danish cartoons. Uh, not in a provocative act, uh, b- but as a news item. Here's what the fuss is about people. It was a media criticism story. Actually, why aren't, wh- where are the free speech activists now was our subheadline. It was not an attempt to get attention. We didn't increase our print run. It wasn't on the cover or anything. It was, it was the news. Well, uh, a local radical imam named Syed Soharwardi, born in Pakistan, trained in the madrasas, does the Saudi lecture circuit. Um, I debated him on the radio, which is what I do every day, but I don't think he was used to being talked back to. So as soon as we were done our radio debate, I went on... To, almost forgot about it, he went to the Calgary Police Service and asked them to arrest me. That's how they do it back home. Now the police were very liberal and said, you're a newcomer, that's not how we do things here. No. But he shopped around his complaint to someone far less liberal than the police and he found uh, a willing taker in the Alberta Human Rights Commission. Isn't it funny that in in the 21st century human rights activists are less liberal than the police? I don't think people in the 60s would have imagined that. What is the Human Rights Commission? Well, there are 14 of them in Canada, one for every one of our political jurisdictions. And they're a quasi-judicial tribunal which means they're they're neither official nor, nor foul. They have some uh, powers, let me list some for example. They have the power to enter my office without a warrant, take any paper and take my hard drive w- without a warrant. <coughs> Real police in Canada don't have that power by the way. They have the power to enter my home and do so with a warrant but they can get that warrant <coughs> ex parte which means I don't have to be there to argue against it. Again, that's a power even our real police don't have. Uh, They, these courts, unlike When a police gets you, uh, you have a lot of procedures that are in the favor of the accused. Lots of rules. There's a high burden of proof, beyond a reasonable doubt, we say. Not so in human rights commissions. There's no set standard of proof. There's no rules of evidence. There's no rules of procedure. Hearsay is allowed. It's very loosey-goosey. So you have the harshness of the criminal system, but without the protections of the criminal system. Another. attribute of these human rights commissions, is that the complainant, once he just writes the complaint and gives it to the government, he doesn't have to do anything more. He doesn't have to pay for the litigation. The litigation is conducted by the government using taxpayers' money and bureaucrats and lawyers. The defendant, myself, has to pay for it on my own. And in Canada, one of the the ways we're better than the American legal system is that loser pays. It's a real damper on vexatious lawsuits. If you go around suing people as a nuisance, you'd better have a good case, because if you abandon your suit in Canada or lose, you actually have to pay not only your own fees, but. The other guys. That's a great rule, I think. It doesn't apply to these human rights cases. So, two complaints were filed against me, one by this imam, Saeed Zorwardy, and one by the Edmonton Council of Muslim Communities. After two years, and I've had to pay almost a hundred thousand dollars, partly through the magazine and now through donors like those in this room, the imam, after getting such a beating in the press for being such a Saudi-style censor, just abandoned and said, oh, the heck with this. It was a victory in a way, but he saddled the taxpayers with a half a million dollars in costs and me with almost a hundred grand. I'm actually not out of the soup yet because this other Edmonton group is still pursuing me, but it shows how this is so open to being hijacked. What we had was a radical Muslim fatwa. His complaint actually quoted Quranic law, not Canadian law. You can see his hand-scrawled complaint on my website. I put it up there. This fatwa was prosecuted by the secular state it 's amazing. let me move a little bit more quickly because I know we 're short of time. besides going to the Calgary Police Service, besides going to the Human rights commissions, by the way, they 've also filed two law society complaints against me i 'm a lawyer, and this is publishing these cartoons was apparently uh, conduct unbecoming, so I, I have to fight that also, although i 'm sure I 'll win. Um, It's been two years before this commission. Some of these cases take five years. One case, I'm not even kidding, took 25 years to to grind through this process. The process is the punishment. If this was a real court, I could apply for what's called a summary dismissal in Canada. Your Honour, this is junk. Throw it out and give me costs. You can't do that in these Human Rights Commissions. Um, Let me move more quickly. Uh, I'm just going to read to you. uh, How many many minutes do I have? two, Two or three more minutes? Uh, Uh, Let me me just read to you the section of the law under which I've been charged. Section 3. No person shall publish, issue, or display, or cause to be published, issued, or displayed before the public any statement, publication, notice, sign, symbol, emblem, or other representation that indicates discrimination or an intention to discriminate against a person or class of persons or, and here's the, the, the key part, is likely to expose a person or class of persons to hatred or contempt. Well, Let's just look at that for a second. It, likely to expose. You haven't caused any hate, but it might in the future. There was a movie called Minority Report with Tom Cruise about pre-crimes, and they would arrest people just before they commit the crimes because the psychics would see the crime was going to happen. How could you please, how could you possibly ple- plead guilty or not guilty, you haven't done anything yet. That's a pre-crime, it's not a normal notion likely to expose a person or class of persons that means you don't have to be affected it could be someone else defamation law is a person in particular you can't all muslims together can't sue in defamation one particular fella can but in this law a class of persons can be hurt and hurt how do they have to be damaged in any way violated Uh, does their own reputation have to be hurt no you have to expose them to quote hatred or contempt Well, those are emotions. Is there anything in politics or art or comedy or sports that doesn't cause us feelings of love or hate or move us? In science, in global warming debate, I mean, you cannot talk without causing emotions. So not only do we have a subjective emotional standard for for guilt, but it doesn't even have to happen. It could be a pre-crime. This is what I've been charged with. There's only one way to plead, and that's guilty, by the way. Because how could you not? Um, The Federal uh, Human Rights Commission, under which Mark Stein, who will be our luncheon speaker, is. has a 100% conviction rate. Of course they do. How could you not? Because unlike defamation, I'm a bit of a defender of defamation law because truth is a defense and fair comment on that truth is a defense and although defamation law can be abused in a strategic way and that's obviously what's happened here, you do have some defenses. Not under this. Truth is not a defense because, so what? The truth has caused people to hate me. That, That is not a defense. Let me wrap up. What can we do? Oh, by the way, here's the next section in the law, i just got to read this out. Nothing in this section shall be deemed to interfere with the free expression of opinion on any <laughs> subject. <laughs> but what does that mean? That means you cannot say it, you can't deem it to be, I mean, yes, it might interfere with freedom of expression, but you can't deem it to be, you can't say it is, it's is crazy. So what can you do? Well, you can't win within the system, so you've got to fight it outside the system. That's the difference between court of law and court of public opinion. So I'm fighting back in the court of public opinion. Um, I, and I see two phases in the fight back. Number one, denormalize these commissions. They have a wonderful name, Human Rights Commission. Those sound like good, good people. But and most people haven't heard of them, so we have to denormalize them and show them to be census, uh, censors and un-Canadian. Saudi values, not Canadian values, is a phrase I use a lot. And only once you build political momentum will you get anyone in politics with the guts to change it. Because what politician would be against human rights? No one. You've got to denormalize that phrase. Unfortunately, they've got a beautiful name, Human Rights Commissions. We have to use the law ourselves. This imam who abandoned his suit against me admitted in, in a newspaper that it was just an attempt to censor me. I'm trying to build a case now to file a real lawsuit against him in real court called abuse of process, where it's, and, and I think I've got a case, and frankly, even if I don't, I think I'm gonna assume, because, uh, <laughs> Um, And that's another thing, is even in a defamation suit we have something in Canada called examinations for discoveries, I think you call them depositions, where you get to go uh, subpoena documents, go through all their documents very proctologically and they don't like that because they they often have things they don't want to show you, like where they get their money from. Finally, and this really is my final point, someone has said, look, hatred and contempt likely to expose, this is so loosey goosey, why don't you complain against them? Now I don't want to do that because I want to stick to my principles that these are un-Canadian both in their substance, their censorship, and their process, kangaroo courts. But if someone else out there, uh, say a friend of mine, were to file complaints against many of these imams themselves for propagating hatred against women, against Jews, against Christians, against anyone hell if it 's free to do, why not file a thousand? Why not file ten thousand complaints and And I think that some Canadians are so ticked off with the one sidedness because it 's only Imams who are suing, and it's only anti-jihadists are being sued, that I think that might be the, the neutron bomb approach, which is, uh, well, m- maybe the only way to de- discredit these commissions to z- is to use them against the bad guys themselves. Those are my remarks. I want to end, as I began, by thanking folks here. It really has been Americans, even more than Canadians, who have allowed me not only to have the moral uh, encouragement that I felt through the blogosphere, but the ability to pay for my lawyers, which I wouldn't have had on my own. So thanks for including me.
0: Thank you, Ezra. We're we're very short on time. I do want to be sure that there are some questions, that we can have some questions from the audience. Stanley, do you have anything you want to intervene with uh, first? Or yes?
1: Sure, but I'll I'll, I'll keep it quick. Um, I I just want to, touching on all these talks, uh, I want to go back to my cultural uh, point. Uh, The operation of these laws uh, in the United States depends on certain cultural presuppositions about liberty. We are incredibly vulnerable, even here, with libel laws that are much better than any of these other countries, because if, as Brooke was saying, you get an organization that intentionally files with no expectation of winning, with the explicit purpose of demoralizing, then you can achieve a tremendous intimidating effect, even in a situation where the laws are as favorable as possible. What Ezra said there delights and scares me, both at the same time, because what I see now happening is a taboo is being broken. These Richard Warman suits against Ezra and the others, uh, the idea of retaliatory suits, if everyone starts playing this game, then the, the fundamental restraint that is required to allow these libel laws to operate without driving everyone crazy is going to be broken. I'm not necess- I haven't decided whether retaliatory suits might be a good temporary edu- educational tactic or not. But I, I think we're at a very scary point right now. And the, fin- and the final thing, coming back to what Rachel Ehrenfeld said and making a a little plug for an article I wrote, you Google an article I wrote called Following the Foreign Money. There is a huge story on foreign money, just like the big donation that um, Rachel Ehrenfeld spoke of uh, to Cambridge. There are huge donations from the Gulf, and not just the highly publicized one from Prince Al-Walid. And uh, these donations are going to be standing in the background on a whole series of decisions, just like Cambridge Press's decision. People were upset about the Harvard Gym decision the other day. And New York University, for one, and a whole series of American universities have just undertaken uh, um, to establish branches in the Gulf. Uh, NYU, I think, is getting something like uh, 50 million up front, not including all the massive operating expenses Uh, There's some good to taking American universities abroad, but I worry very much about the fact that the financial control is in the hands of the Gulf, and it's going to create a a very uh, discouraging background to a whole series of decisions American colleges and universities are going to be making.
2: I just want to make one sentence. Following on this line, uh, I think that, as far as I understand, the lawsuits in the United States against people who speak out against Islam or tell the truth about Islam uh, started following or begin following the lawsuits that Ben Mahfouz was so successful with in, in London. And we cannot separate, I think, uh, the political issues and the financial issues because had the U.S. government designated Saudi Arabia and most of the Saudis that fund terrorism and fund these lawsuits or pursue these lawsuits as terrorist-supporting entities, uh, we wouldn't be in this problem. Uh, The fact that because of money, what is it, $119 a barrel today, uh, that that speaks very highly People are reluctant, the government is reluctant to uh, designate Saudi Arabia for many other reasons as well, in the Gulf states, and they do what they want because they can. And what makes it possible for them is money. Follow the money.
0: Thank you, Rachel. I suppose uh, one way of summing up this morning's um, panel is um, in the phrase, be afraid, be very afraid. Uh, We'd like to take questions from the audience now. There are, I think, microphones, uh, so if you'll wait Uh, to to, you till Nick here has a microphone. And uh, if you want to address the question to a particular person, do so. Uh, uh, Nick, why don't we call first on uh, uh, Nina Rosenwald. If you'd identify yourself, too. Thank be you, great.
4: Nina
3: Rosenwald, American Securities LLC. Um, great presentations, everybody. Brooke, I wanted to ask for clarification. You mentioned the anti-slap lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Would they not
5: be much less expensive if one could put that as um, sort of generic state law?
2: Is there a problem?
4: Well, yeah, the thing with the anti slap statutes is that you have to wait to be sued in order to take advantage of them. So it's sort of like an affirmative defense. So when you're uh, sued by a party that you believe is just using the court simply to intimidate you, then what you do is you make a motion to dismiss and you specifically use this statute. So... Uh, what would be better than anti-slap statutes are some sort of legislation like, you know, Rachel's Law that preemptively takes care of the issue, um, but that doesn't not exist.
0: Gentleman, there.
6: Thank you. My name is Stuart Kaufman of the Stop the Madrasa Coalition. Um, this is addressed both to Mr. Kurtz and to Mr. Levant, and I guess. Uh, even more generally to everyone. One of the things that concerns me is this uh, sensitivity to playing the same game that they play. I'm not sure you say as to whether or not it's cricket to use the uh, Canadian Human Rights Commission against the people who are using it improperly. Well, one of the, uh, one of the problems that we are facing uh, is that uh, we're trying to play by Marquis of Queensbury rules when the other guys are, are trying to kill us. Um, just in terms of defamation, for instance, we are in the, the beginnings of uh, examining the, the possibility of filing uh, a lawsuit against uh, our uh, opponents who have defamed us uh, and uh, by calling us stalkers and racists, etc. The idea being that if they can play that game, we can play that game. As long as it's legal, I don't see anything wrong with it.
1: Well, you might be right, but I'm not so sure. And you, the Marcus of Queensbury rule sounds like the Marcus of Queensbury guy isn't going to win and the other guys are going to win. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think keeping the moral high ground is sometimes the best way to win. I really don't know. Maybe we need a good cop, bad cop. But I'm worried that if we take the bad cop approach, it's going to have lasting negative effects. But It might not, and I haven't decided. If there is a kind of giant blow-up with everyone going crazy at each other, the public will be sort of repulsed, and that will restore the taboo, so to speak, after the whole fight is over. I just don't know. But it's a serious question, a kind of perennial question of tactics, and I don't think we have to puzzle through for a while. I don't think there's an obvious answer. The only reason I'm opposed to filing Human Rights
5: Commission complaints is because I don't want to... Grant legitimacy to the right of the Canadian government to adjudicate what is hateful or not, what is offensive or not, what's politically acceptable or not. And I don't want to grant uh, legitimacy to a system that doesn't have any real natural justice or rule of law to it. On the other hand, I I do actually support defamation law more or less, and I uh, and I, I think tools that are legitimate can and should be used. I just don't want, I, I want to abolish all human rights commissions and that's a tough to argue for if you're using them yourself. I, I think the law in, in America is generally noble and just and should be used. This is a particular odious unnatural un-Canadian un-American law that I'm finding in particular and I, I hope to uproot it not just prune it back. Uh, so we, yes, it's maybe there.
1: Good morning, I'm Fausta Works of Fausta's blog. This is more of a cultural question and probably more in the abstract. Isn't this part of a trend in our western culture culture towards validating feelings and mythology rather than standing for what our constitution and our values are?
0: Is that directed to anyone in particular? (laughs)
5: I'd love to take a crack at that. I, uh, in Canada, Canadian values, and we have something called the Charter of Rights, which is fairly liberal, charter values. Those are buzzwords that the left has used. I'm trying to grab those back. And there's left-wingers and right-wingers in the crowd here, but I, I want to call our side Canadian values, and I want to defame the other side by calling them Saudi values. And. And human rights, uh, I want to talk about rule uh, rule of law, meritocracy, equality of men and women. I want to grab all those good words and dress my side up in it. And I want to force the other... I want to I use, frankly, the words that w- the feminists and the gay rights activists who have abandoned this fight, I want to take those words and I want to really uh, remind people that this is actually a liberal fight. And absolutely, and I talk about... Training newcomers to Canada and what it means to be Canadian. And in Canada, we've recently had some honor killings—a young woman who was killed by her dad for uh, dressing like a, like Britney Spears. I am um, so absolutely—we've got to root this in. For you, this is what it means to be American. And and I think grab those words. The ACLU won't do it, so take their language and use it. Um. Yes, sir. That's-
3: Thank you. John Wolstetter, senior fellow Discovery Institute and author and blogger. Uh, for Stanley Kurtz, uh, two quick points on what was said. One is you can distinguish between the defensive and offensive use of these laws that you dislike. If you are being sued in one of these lawsuits, it's perfectly legitimate to counterclaim. It's not something you initiated, and then you avoid the pitfall of saying, of getting somebody to sue somebody to start a lawsuit where you can be accused then of hypocrisy as long as you are drawn in in the first instance involuntarily you are entitled to use every legal weapon and there's nothing hypocritical or wrong about it the other and this pertains to what stanley kurtz said about the holocaust denial laws Mm -hmm. sort of as in the procession, they may be a predicate to having any chance to make progress because the strong, one of the strongest arguments you have, and the hardest one for the Human Rights Commissions to counter, is that they are treating religions differently. In the United States, for example, in the Skokie case 30 years ago, Jews were told, uh, those who had been in concentration camps, that Nazis had the right to march in full regalia in Skokie. They wound up marching in Chicago, but they had won the legal right. Christians were told, that uh, Piss Christ uh, could be shown in the Cincinnati Museum after Rudy kicked it out of the Brooklyn Museum, and they just have to put up with it. And you can say we will give exactly the same protection to Islamic sensitivities as we give to Jewish and Catholic sensitivities. So if you can identify, which is not much, and if you can identify in Canada or other places, Cases where there have been insults directed against uh, Jews and Christians that the human rights commissions have ignored—it gives you a stronger ground on which to fight these suits. And so I would think you would need to move those Holocaust uh, denial uh, claims up uh, to the to the forefront of the effort, at least in Europe, because it could be a predicate for having some success.
1: Well, yeah, I think the the. Uh, the Holocaust denial laws are a terrible problem. That really was a a, slippery, a slope that uh, slipped. And I would re- highly recommend to everyone a great article from the Weekly Standard, you can Google, by a fellow named Gerard Alexander called Illiberal Europe. And he tells the story of how these ho- uh, Holocaust denial laws really became the uh, nose under the tent that led to everything else. Do you know that Bernard Lewis, by the way, has been prosecuted under Holocaust denial laws because he made some comment on the radio about there, having been, there, there might have been a lot of killings in the Armenia by Turks. And the French uh, parliament had passed a law saying that you can't say that there was no... He said, yes, there were a lot of killings, but it's unclear as to how intentional it was, whether it was exactly the same as the Holocaust. And he was prosecuted and I think he had to uh, make some kind of a payment in that and it's been broadened and it's been broadened out successively so i think it's very dangerous yes it might be an interesting compromise to uh, only go after people who uh, come after you that that makes uh, that that might preserve the uh, the taboo while still uh, getting back but i think people are much more ambitious in what they want uh, it's been debated on the web just the other day about in Canada. If you try to counter sue under these human rights commissions, the human rights commissions won't even take a conservative complaint against someone who has said bad things about conservatives, and yet the point was made, well, let's let's get that itself on record. So, But again, I, I worry about legitimizing. This is kind of like should you go and sue for affirmative action for conservatives to try to use something like that? Doesn't that just validate the principle of affirmative action? These are perennial problems and arguments that come up.
3: I'm Candice DeRussi and I'm a higher education critic. Stanley, uh, en passant, you mentioned uh, the campus bias reporting systems. Would you elaborate on the place of that uh, problem in, in, this, in this context?
1: Well, I don't, uh, because I don't have a lot of time, one thing again I'll mention for people who who like using uh, Google, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, fantastic organization protecting free speech rights here, has taken up this issue of campus bias reporting systems. I ran across this only recently. There were battles at uh, William and Mary over various issues. And uh, I I was told by some students there that a system had been established where you can anonymously report anyone who might have made any kind of biased statement or comment. And the way in which bias is defined, it's all very shaky. It's all too reminiscent of the human rights uh, commissions in Canada and FIRE has sort of taken up the cause of trying to eliminate these. They're starting to spread. People don't even know. Georgetown is now talking about instituting one. They start out just like the Canadian HRC's focused on uh, possible reports uh, dealing with either um, racism or homosexuality, but Georgetown's establishing one. You've got uh, Al-Waleed Center funded uh, with a $20 million donation there. You can bet that there could be some Islamophobia accusations under this new bias reporting system. So you can see the whole thing starting in American universities. And so you've, uh, Ezra gave the thing, you know, it goes from Europe to then five years later to Canada, five years later to the United, uh, three years later to the American University and three years after that to uh, all of America.
0: We have time for just a couple more questions. Let's move back there. I see the gentleman way in the back row. I'm going to make you uh, walk up and down there, Nick.
3: My name is Rob Peters. I'm the Communications Director for Act for America. Since several of you seem to be veterans of legal battles with um, Islamists, I was wondering if you could tell me what you think about this situation. I have a website. It's called www.godsaveusa.com. And recently, I opened a bank account at Wachovia to set up a PayPal account for donations, and they gladly accepted my money, opened the account, and after having looked at my website, I got an email refusing me the uh, bank services. Is there anything you can do to suggest, do I have any recourse that you might know of? It's like financial terrorism.
4: Well, I'd have to... Before I'd give a legal opinion, I'd have to talk to you about the details of the case, but it, it doesn't seem so much like a case of an Islamist organization going and trying to impede free speech, what we're talking about here. I don't know what your contract is with your bank, so I don't think I could comment.
0: This, this might be something that you can talk about with Brooke yeah. Yeah. Uh, after the session. Any other right, questions? You. Uh, uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, yes, sir. That's right. uh,
7: Uh, My name is Aaron Natan Meyer. I'm a legal intern at The Legal Project. And um, I I wanted to make a point about the divide between Britain and America. Uh, A crucial part of defamation, uh, despite the general Anglo-American common law that we share, uh, we broke away from them in the early 18th century. I mean, this is not something new. Uh, Zenger's case, which is very applicable, took place in the colony of New York state in the early 18th century. He was a printer who printed an uh, article by someone else, which was found to defame the new governor. The jury was informed that uh, truth was not a defense and that they, were, they had to convict him. Two very important legal concepts were formed at that time, the concept of jury nullification, which is enshrined in our constitutional law, and the concept that the truth is an absolute defense to defamation cases. So I think that when we discuss the differences between the British and the American legal systems, we should note that we broke away from them even before we were a nation, even in the colonial period. And I think that that's something that's not really analyzed in the light of recent events, but it's something that goes back 300 years.
1: Well, uh, I agree that they're, look, I'm not trying to say that our traditions are identical. Of course, there are important differences, and it is very interesting and important, as you note, to go through the history of it. But I was struck when looking through all this uh, at how in motion, as I said in the talk, everything is. There is in, in British law, something I had to leave out of the talk, and uh, right now in Britain, uh, for the last 10 or 15 years, there's been developed something called the Reynolds Defense, which was a particular case in which uh, they started to make exceptions, the courts made exceptions in Britain, for something that can be shown to be in the public interest by a reputable mainstream news organization, and yet... Uh, uh, Mr. Justice Eadie has been under undercutting and undermining the Reynolds defense so here we have something in Britain that developed 15 years ago and now Eadie trying to undercut it whereas other justices are criticizing him so it's remarkable how much how much everything is currently up for grabs and in motion
2: but the, there is another component to the British uh definitely for Judge Edie's decisions and he's not the only one he's the chief justice so therefore most of the cases come before him at least he's choosing them uh, that is his complete um, uh, uh, disgust or, or uh, dist- it's not distrust he's, he doesn't like Americans, he doesn't like American policy, he doesn't like what Americans uh, elected officials say or even what the courts do uh, and he regards it as complete, um, uh, completely untrustworthy, and therefore, even evidence um, or statements by public officials are something that are not. Uh, he will not um, be willing to take as evidence. Just so really, that's politically yeah. is also very important because that component comes into what gets in and what not. Just really, really quickly, what I think hasn't been mentioned beyond the whole "truth
4: is defense" uh, concept. Uh, citizens who brief government officials or who testify at courts of law, they cannot then be sued for for what they're saying. And what's really disturbing that has been mentioned is that many parties are now being sued for reporting on U.S. government investigations and reporting on official proceedings uh, where uh, the public is basically briefed on terrorism. This includes the New York Times and includes the Wall Street Journal. Um, and they've all been sued literally for reporting on government proceedings. And, and that's the antithesis of free speech.
0: I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time for this uh, session. There'll be opportunities for more discussions and more uh, questions uh, in, the, uh, in the, the next session and in the afternoon. I'd like to thank Stanley, uh, Rachel, Brooke uh, and Ezra for their their fine contributions to this panel, and I suppose the moral is that things are always worse than you think. Thank you very much.